Well, Jason, it's inauguration day. Yep, which is why I brought a whole carton of cigarettes. <laughs> well, they're candy. So. Candy cigarettes, but we're going through the whole thing today. Yeah, man. But anyway, <laughs> it's you know what? It's it's going to be a good day. I mean, there's we're getting a new president. It's a president that we got to pray for. Yeah. Regardless if you voted for him or not. So, I that's one of the things I want to remind people, I guess, before we get into the fun stuff. But yeah. Considering the fun stuff, we got a guest on, but before we bring him on, I wanted to ask you, Jason, what is your favorite patriotic pro-America movie? Without a doubt. Okay, let me, let's hear it. Without a doubt, Almost Heroes. Boom! <laughs> Chris Farley's last yeah. movie. No, that wasn't his last, was That's it? That's his very last movie. What I think about he, Beverly Hills Ninja? I, I think that he was died in post-production man. of that movie. Yeah. I'm going to cry now. Yeah, man. Just I, I loved Chris Farley. So Matthew Perry was his co-star in that movie, yep. which I don't know why. Maybe somebody knows the history on this. Like, why didn't they get David Spade to be his his co-star in that movie? I don't like, know. It just would have been so awesome. Matthew that, Perry did a good job. He did, but at the same time, like... Do you got I'm, a drippy dung? <laughs> <laughs> it drips when it should and doesn't when it shouldn't. <laughs> I love that movie. <sighs> but like at the same time, like it would have been like a third Tommy Boy Black Sheep style movie and that would not have been a bad thing. The one dude gets his ear chopped off and he's he's trying to talk into it. He's whispering, <laughs> Bedwell, can you hear me? Oh man. <laughs> Mine, since yeah. you asked. Yeah, what's 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 your favorite uh patriotic movie, Alex? I've got so many. I grew up. On uh, so many of these movies, like Rocky Four, where he fights the big Russian. Oh, and this is yeah. taking place right in the middle of the 80s. So, like, you got Rocky in his America boxing shorts against yeah. the giant Soviet uh, Drago. Drago. I was trying <laughs> to think of it. Yeah. And it's so funny, too, because, like, uh, Rocky is, like, training in, like, a barn. And he's, like, doing all these, like, yep. he's using all this farm equipment to train. And then you got Drago. He's in this, like, state-of-the-art gym. And they're pumping him full of steroids. <laughs> and, like, it's, like, a total just <laughs> let's bash the Russians and the communists and, like, make, you know, America, this underdog, like, just crush him. <sighs> Your movie's all about battle and mine's just two guys. I know. like <laughs> With Sacagawea. <laughs> going across. <laughs> Going across country, but that brings me to <laughs> that brings me to the to introducing our guest. Our guest is a guy named Keith, and he wrote a book called "Jesus Untangled: Crucifying Our Politics and Pledging Allegiance to the Lamb." And we just got done interviewing him, and it's been one of our best interviews for sure. And I know I say that about every interview that we do, Jason, well, but because we like all of our interviews, we do. What's and, wrong with that? We like what we do. It's fun. Yeah, but, we're having fun. But Keith is a guy who's got some things to say. And my thing is, I want you guys to listen to it. You guys are listening to this episode, so you're already listening to it. But I want you to hear what he has to say because I was really anxious going into this interview. But when I heard Keith and what he was saying and what he's about, he's about pointing people back to Jesus. Absolutely. And you can't fault a guy. Yeah. Alex, let me ask let me ask you some questions right from Keith's book. Yeah, for sure. Do a little little bit of reading here. Ask yourself these questions about your nation, Alex. Okay. Does my nation officially devote itself to the specific person of Jesus? Does my nation acknowledge Jesus alone as Lord and King? Does my nation base any of its laws or policies on the Sermon on the Mount? 
If you answered no to any or all of those questions, your nation is not a Christian nation, and it stands against the kingdom of our Lord. Boom, son. Absolutely. This is a good one. This is going to be a good one. This is not your pastor's political episode. All right, guys, we're here with Keith Giles. What's up, Keith? Hey guys, thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm really excited. Oh man, we were so thrilled that you got a hold of us. When we saw the cover of your book, I was like, man, this guy's legit. This guy, like that cover <laughs> is sick. Yeah, when I read the title is Jesus Untangled, and then I saw the subtitle, Crucifying Our Politics to Pledge Allegiance to the Lamb, and I was like, I'm into this book already. <laughs> <laughs> wow, awesome. <laughs> so where are you calling but- from, Keith? Uh, I am uh, in Orange County, California, in the city of Orange, and I am I live uh, I can see the the uh, fireworks from Disneyland from oh, my front wow. yard. Oh my! And also Angel Stadium. So Angel uh, Baseball Stadium is uh, actually a little bit closer to me. So I'm kind of right there. Man, that's awesome! Yeah, I've never been out to Disneyland. I've been to Disney World a few times, but. Man, I've flown over so California jealous. once. It looked nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, from that from that uh, altitude, it looks really good. Yeah, we're uh, we're calling from Alex's basement here in Flint, Michigan. Awesome. Anyway, so Keith, why don't you tell us a little bit about your story and how you ended up writing a book about well about politics and how the church maybe should uh, take a step back from it a little bit. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you a little bit about my my personal story. It's um, uh, so I I was uh, born in Tennessee, raised mostly in South Texas. Um, went to uh, lived most of my life in El Paso, Texas, from like junior high all the way through college. Went to UT El Paso, met my wife there. I was licensed and ordained as a Southern Baptist pastor. Uh, very soon after I got married. And that was about 26 years ago. And um, Are you looking to your wife for reassurance? <laughs> I'm looking at my wife to make sure it's not 27, maybe 26. <laughs> it's 27. She says 20, it's, I'm sorry, 27. 27. Oh. You can edit that, right? Yeah, we can, yeah, we can edit that. Yeah, we'll make you sound and, <laughs> like you remembered. <laughs> right. And um, so, yeah, I... Um, you know, when, when, when you grow up in the church, uh, and you feel like you're called to really give your whole heart and your whole life to Jesus and want to serve him, really, you're only left with two options, uh, really. And that's either to be a pastor or to be a missionary. And I didn't want to be a missionary. So I thought, well, I must be called to be a pastor. So I I surrendered to the ministry. And, um, yeah. And so over the years, I, served at different churches. We moved to California about 20... Now, this I do remember because my son was born a couple years later, and he's just turned 21, so that was about 23 years ago. Okay. Okay. And uh, we've lived in uh, Southern California ever since then. And so when we moved to California, uh, my wife and I got involved with some vineyard churches here, and we even helped to plant a church uh, out here. And um, that was a great experience. Um, had never planted a church from scratch before, and but that 
time frame. So I was at that church that we helped to plant uh, here in Tustin, California for about three years. And that that time frame, I think, is really where God started doing, really shaking my life up a whole lot in many ways. And that's kind of how I ended up where I am here. Um, one of the things that happened, like I said, one was we started a church from scratch, which we had never done before. That was an amazing experience to kind of like be there from the ground floor of planting a church. So that right. was great. Yeah. The second thing was um, what we were doing, we were doing children's ministry. My wife and I were doing children's ministry and compassion ministry. Compassion ministry was ministry to the poor in our community. And we both loved that and felt really called to that and excited about that. So that was significant. Um, during that time frame, I started writing for Relevant Magazine. Wow. And, okay. Uh, yeah. We know that um, magazine. Yeah. And this was years ago. This is when I think at the time they had they were they started off they were just a website that was just relevant online, and they built a good following and then eventually they published a magazine a print magazine. Um, so I was writing for the website, and I started a column called Subversive which is the name of my blog, which came up later. But um, as part of that column I was writing for Relevant, the subversive column, the point of the column was to interview different people, sort of leaders in the church and you know, uh, thought leaders and that kind of thing. Keep in mind, this was also during the phase where the emerging church movement was kind of starting to get up some steam. And yeah. I was, uh, so I was interviewing different people and I interviewed this guy um, who's a good friend of mine, uh, but um, his name was Todd Hunter. And I interviewed him. He was actually my very first interview. And on my very first interview, I asked him, what's wrong with the church in America today? Expecting, you know, uh, I thought, I think kind of a ballpark idea of what I thought he was going to say, but he did not say what I thought he was going to say. Uh, his answer to my question was, he said, well, Keith, I think the biggest problem with the church in America today is that they do not understand the gospel. Wow. They fundamentally Boom. don't understand yep. the gospel. <laughs> and And I... Now, listen, guys, I was a licensed, entertained pastor and had been for a decade yeah. when he told me that, when he told me that. And and I didn't know what he meant. And I said, well, what do you mean? He says, well, you know, the gospel is not about saying a prayer so you can go to heaven when you die. And I I said, well, OK, well, what is the gospel? And he goes, well, you know, if you go to the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Jesus tells you the, what the gospel is. He says the good news, which is what gospel means, yep. is that the kingdom of God is here now. You can enter the kingdom right now. You don't have to wait until you die. Uh, and so that was, I had never heard that before. It, it just blew my mind. The idea that the gospel wasn't about praying a prayer so you go to heaven when you die. And that was like a bomb going off in my heart, in my life, in my spiritual life. And that realization reoriented everything in my life. I am still to this day um, dealing with the ripples that came out of that conversation with Todd. And um, so, so it kind of made me think, okay, if the gospel is about Jesus as the king, he's the king. He invites us into a kingdom, which is his kingdom. Well, if he's the king, that means I have to take my crown off of my life. I have to lay Absolutely, it at his feet. Yeah. He's, he's the king. He's my Lord. And now what does he tell me to do? Okay, well, let's read the Sermon on the Mount. And how do I do that? Well, the only way to do that is to abide in him. All right, well, I'm going to get as close to him as I can. And the only way to pull this off is to, you know, to, to be connected to him. So I want to get near to him. I want to hear his voice. I want to experience him. And I want to follow him with my whole life. And so I started doing that. And in the process of doing that, uh, I got into a lot of trouble. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I bet. So, so. Um, Seems to be the Bible story. You start following Jesus, you get in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, kind of, uh, but in a great way, right? So, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. We were, my wife and I, and we had two, our boys were young at the time. Uh, we, we initially really felt God calling us to leave that church and start another church. And we were like, amen. Okay, God, we prayed about it. We really felt like it was really, it really was genuinely a calling from God. And we said, okay, God, we'll do it. And after we said yes, then we felt, then the next thing God said was, uh, I want you to, I want this church that you're going to plant to be a church that gives away 100% of the offering to the poor in the community. Damn, and I don't want you to- dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That is and, so uh, incredibly awesome. <laughs> and so, and we thought so too. I mean, at first I was thinking, man, I've never even heard of that. I mean, can you imagine meeting someone and they tell you, well, well tell me about your church. Oh yeah, we give away all the, all the offering to the poor in the community and we don't keep it for ourselves. What? So we were really excited about that. What about and, pastors um, being worth the double honor that they're due? Keith, come on. Yeah. Did you just <laughs> well, not collect a salary? or? No, I don't. Yeah, I, I did not collect a salary. Oh, man. Uh, and, and so the only way – I always say we, we backed into house church because um, I never read a house church book. I didn't know anybody doing house church. I thought, honestly, yeah. I'll be honest, when, when, when we first considered this, I thought this is the craziest thing I've ever heard of. I didn't know anyone doing house church. I'd never been to a house church. I've never, you know, who does that? Yeah, um, Richard Jacobson, who does that? <laughs> right. right exactly. I, didn't, I didn't know Richard at the time. Yeah. But, uh, but, um, but we said, okay, God, we'll do it. And, but of course, everyone tried to talk us out of it, said we were, uh, I had people tell me I was throwing my gift away, that oh, I could be pastoring a church. Oh, yeah. Um, some of my pastor friends yeah. told me, Keith, you're throwing your gift away. You could you could pastor a church of 500 people, 1,000 people. Why would you only want to minister to you know five or 10 people in your living room? And um, and it was difficult <laughs> to answer the question because I didn't – I had not done yet. I, you know what I mean? I hadn't actually done what it was I was called to do. I couldn't explain to them yeah. how or why. I, so I remember just saying to, to this brother – who asked me that question, I just said, you know, man, here's all I can say to you. I know, I am convinced that Jesus is calling me and my family to do this. And in in 10 years, if I'm pastoring a church of a thousand people, that is failure because that's not what he's calling me to do. But if 10 years I'm doing what he called me to do, no matter how many people are in my living room, that's success because I'm obedient to what he called me to do. And I have to do this. Amen. <laughs> so, we we did. I, I I resigned from the the church there. Um, I was actually kind of out of work for about a year, uh, doing temporary work and and everything. But eventually, I found the job I'm in now, uh, which is I'm a copywriter for a, a marketing agency for a technology company. And um, but we started this house church in our home, and pe- God just brought people to us uh, who had similar hearts and desires. And I've been doing this now for ten years, uh, having the house church in our home. Well, we rotate. It's not always in my house, but um, we've been doing it for 10 years, and I always say it's the best thing I've ever done with the word church on it. It's just amazing That's and beautiful. Awesome. Uh, I'm not the senior pastor. Uh, I met with a guy yesterday for coffee who was curious about joining our house church, kind of explained him what we do and how we do it, and then he said to me at the end, he goes, so it sounds like you don't have a, a senior pastor. And I said, oh, no, 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 we we have a senior pastor. In fact, he's been doing it longer than anyone I know. Uh, <laughs> I know where this is going. And I yeah. promise you, I promise you he's better than any pastor of any church you have ever uh. been to. Uh, in fact, some people call him the great pastor or the great shepherd. He's, he's the bomb. Um, oh, so that's what we've been doing. And uh, that's kind of how I ended up where I'm at. 
uh, that doesn't answer the question about how I wrote the book, but that's kind of how I ended up where, what doing what I'm doing anyway. Well, now, well, now people kind of have like an idea of who you are and you, I, it was interesting. You're telling your story. I'm like, oh, he grew up in the Bible belt. So for him to write a book like this, oh man, yeah. you're going yeah. against a lot of your roots, man. <laughs> Yeah, well, my parents haven't read it yet, but I'm I'm waiting for that. Oh, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? They've been they've been really supportive, actually. And even though they mean, you know, what I mean, they they've always supported my writing, and they they really support the ministry and everything that we do. Um, but this is a this is still a, a big struggle, I think, for them. And yeah. um, it's going to be I, for a lot honest, of people. Oh, I know it is. Yeah. I know it is. And. Um, it's for people like my parents and other friends of mine, people that I dearly love, good good friends of mine in, in Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ, that I see living very entangled lives that really gave me a burden to say, I need to write a book that um, as best I can explains what entanglement is and explains the fruit of it and, and why we need to escape it, why we need to imagine our, our life in Christ apart from politics. Oh man! Yeah. So to get into your book a little bit and the yeah. po- the political side of things, um, I'm going to read a section of your book that I read. It's it's kind of uh, what you wrote about yourself, and it really resonated with me. Um, and so here goes. Um, it says, "I must confess that I was a victim of this propaganda. I was raised in a Republican home. I voted in every election since I was legally able to vote." and I always voted straight-ticket Republican. I listened to Rush Limbaugh. I read his books. I watched the Republican National Convention every election year on television. I cheered for my Republican president, and I griped and complained about those liberal Democrats who were ruining our nation and threatening to bring down the wrath of God upon us. But it was, and it is, all a lie. That's what we call a boom statement, Yes, yeah, we call those booms. Yeah, how did, I mean, that resonates with me because I was the exact same way. I mean, I mean I'm a little bit younger than you, but we're, mm-hmm. we're coming to the same conclusions. I remember going to church and hearing what I called Fox News sermons yeah. uh, week after week after week, and I became a product of that. I mean, I voted straight ticket Republican. I listened yep. to Rush Limbaugh at work, and I thought— all along yeah. the way that I was doing the very God-honoring thing. And when I read your conclusion, but it's all a lie, like like in my heart, like I knew that. And, you know, mm-hmm. I, I haven't been that way the last four. I mean, even my appearance was different. I did, I did whatever I could to fit into that Republican, very conservative model. Like I, I was willing yeah. to sacrifice who I was to live out this ideal of what others thought I should be like. And yeah. like I said, we switched churches, and our church, our church, um, was probably more in line with your book, actually, um, yeah. um, than the traditional setting that I grew up in. But I read that it was a lie, and I'm thinking five years ago, man, it's still so comforting, comforting to hear somebody in California, no less, <laughs> yeah, say it's a lie. Like it felt so good yeah. to me. And how did you get there? How did you go from? super yeah. conservative to to where you are today. Yeah. Well, you know what? It's uh, it's hard to trace the path. I think it it's sort of one of these things where um 
I think it really began, as I said, when I had that conversation with my friend Todd Hunter, and he kind of rearranged the furniture in my heart and my mind about what the gospel was all about, that the gospel wasn't about saying a prayer so I can go to heaven when I die, but it wasn't about what would happen if I if I died tonight, would I be in heaven tomorrow? But it was actually, if I'm alive tomorrow, mm-hmm. how will I live my life and who will I follow? And and I think, honestly, that's that was the breakthrough, I think, that at least put me on the path. It didn't happen overnight. It, didn't, yeah. it wasn't like if someone threw a switch. Like, I, I was still a Republican when that happened, right? I still believed that whole thing, you know, when that happened. But I was set on a course that slowly but surely the Lord started peeling layers away opening my eyes to things, showing me things about myself. I will tell a story that I think was one of the first uh, aha moments for me. And it's one of these things where it's much easier to see, you know, the the speck in someone else's eye than it is to see the plank in your own eye. For sure. Uh, So I was on the phone with my parents, and they they still live in El Paso. And um, it was a long-distance call. And they gave me some really great news. They said, there's a family friend. Her name is Phyllis. And I'd known her since I was a little boy. And she's, she's like my mom's age. And, they, and then they weren't Christians. The, they, her family were not Christian. And so on the call, my mom and dad were all excited. Hey, Phyllis, uh, she came to church with us. And she went forward and she accepted Jesus. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm crying. This is beautiful. This is so exciting. I'm so excited. When Phyllis is you know, a family friend. And she's finally a Christian. I was so excited about that. So a couple of months go by, and I'm on the phone with my parents again, a uh, long-distance call. And we're actually finished with the call. We're actually getting ready to hang up. And I said, oh, wait, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. Um, how's Phyllis doing? I want to know how Phyllis is doing. And it gets quiet. Mm. And then my dad says, you know, Keith, I'm not even sure she is a Christian. I'm not even sure she had a genuine conversion experience. And I go, what do you mean? I'm thinking she must have had like a horrible you know, uh, relapse or something, and yeah. she's living in some life of sin. And my dad says, well, you know, she ju- she voted for John Kerry in the last election. Oh, oh my. man. You know, he was the Antichrist, for sure. Oh, of course. <laughs> That's of course. what I was taught in church. And so, oh, you know. Oh, man. I, when I, I basically, so I saw that entanglement in my father and my mother, and they were dead serious. I mean, yeah. They, they oh, no. I, could uh, not, how yeah. can you be a Christian and not vote this way? For sure. And so, and so I started thinking about that, and then I started realizing about myself, you know what? I'm just like that. I've, I've had those same kinds of assumptions. Yep. And and so I do this I do this in the book, and I've done this face-to-face in conversation with people where I will say to them, um, imagine that someone hears the gospel in communist China or North Korea or, you know, in Africa or S- South America or whatever, and they hear the gospel and they genuinely hear the gospel and they genuinely, sincerely say, I want to follow Jesus, and they begin to follow him and to live a life as a sincere follower of Christ. Now, I want to ask you, you, do they at that moment also become a Republican? No. (laughs) Do they also Uh, at that moment become a capitalist? Absolutely not. Or a liberal or Democrat. Yeah. Uh, So, so not only, so, so again, again, it just helps. I want it. I say this because I think it helps Christians in America to understand something, to realize a reality. Wow. It's possible to sincerely follow Jesus completely apart from that political ideology. And now I'm gonna now one last thing. Okay, I'm gonna talk another boom moment. I'm, okay. Here's another boom coming. <laughs> Not only then is it possible to be like that young person in China or North Korea who hears the gospel sincerely and follows Jesus apart from uh, conservative politics. Not only is it possible, 
It's what's happening to the majority of Christians on this planet. Yes. The majority of Christians, our brothers and sisters in Christ in the, in the worldwide church of, of Jesus on this planet, they are not Americans. That means they're not capitalists. They're not conservatives. They're not Democrats. They're not libertarians. They are following Jesus apart from any of the ideologies that we think are so essential. Man. And so we have got to understand that. And it's like, look in the mirror, back up for a second and understand you are part of a global family of God that is not made up of these tribal um, distinctions, right? Mm -hmm. uh, we, we have to recognize we are members of Christ's kingdom. We are ambassadors of Christ's kingdom. Yeah. And, and that isn't a metaphor. Uh, it, it should be something that's true and real in our actual life. Absolutely. So, but, uh, but the person would say back to you, though, Keith, this is a Christian nation. Like, obviously, we're going yeah. to. I love how you're shaking your head. I'm obviously saying that very sarcastically. <laughs> but it's one, of, it's, it's one of our questions. So, and this yeah. is a, something that's been very interesting to me, this, especially with this whole election cycle. I started, I used to be a huge fan. I, I mean, I still am a huge fan of American history. And I took every class I could in college on American history and just general world history that I could. And I, w I started going back through my notes and I started like thinking of reading some books and even watching some documentaries on Facebook or Facebook, excuse me, Netflix. And I'm yeah. like, uh, this, 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 cause I, I bought into it too for a while, Keith, that this was oh, a yeah. Christian nation and like we're founded on Christian principles and all of this stuff, and it's like, well, of course, that we would we would want to vote and move our legislation towards more Christian moralities. But I just don't think we're a Christian nation, Keith. So no, I I think you're right. <laughs> um, and so, and man, and that is such a stronghold. I'm telling you, and again, so many people, in my family, and my friends who have bought into this. This, I mean, I hate to say it, it is a it's a fantasy. It's a it's something that, but it's it's something constructed. I think, to manipulate us, to get us to do what they want us to do, which is to vote a certain way and behave a certain way. Um, but this idea, it, it, you know, I've studied church history, uh, I mean, American history as well. And I think, okay, I, I will give you this much, um, that probably the majority of the people who originally came from England, right, Puritans and Quakers, they were Christians, that doesn't mean we were a Christian nation. We were a nation of Christians yeah. uh, in the beginning, primarily. There might have been some two uh, different atheists, things. I'm sure. There were, yeah. But that's exactly that's two different things. And uh, talk about talk about American history. I would highly encourage anyone interested in this topic who also is interested in history uh, to go and read anything about Roger Williams. Okay. Uh, okay. Roger Williams was the probably the first, you know. Um, champion warrior for this idea that that the, the Christian church should not be entangled with the government. Uh, this is where we got Rhode Island, by the way. Uh, he founded this, he founded the colony of Rhode Island as a safe haven for people running from persecution, religious persecution, from all the other colonies around there. <laughs> uh, he wrote amazing letters back and forth to, to his friends who were, who were clergymen and, and pastors and leaders of Christian churches in, uh, in the colonies. This is way before you know we became an, even a nation. We were still British colonies, and um, and the letters that the way he writes to them. I remember him uh, having a debate with one of the, one of the guys he was uh, debating with, and the man was saying, which we hear this all the time, 
you know, he was trying to make the argument, his opponent was trying to make the argument, no, we need godly leaders. You know, the world, you know, we require these godly leaders to to lead our nation forward and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah. And Roger Williams made a great point. He says, if that is true, then how poorly has Jesus, how, how, how greatly has Jesus failed to supply these you know, incredibly necessary godly leaders throughout history because we have had Nero and Constantine and, you know, he went down the list and King George and uh, Napoleon. And where are these godly leaders that supposedly are so necessary uh, for God to accomplish his will and for things to happen the way they're supposed to happen? And you and I could add even more names to that list since Roger Williams, right? Adolf Hitler and Mussolini and Idi Amin and on and on and on. And so... You know, his whole point was, um, it's the the wolf who rules, not the lamb. We are we are following the lamb of God. Now he is the lamb of God who reigns and rules, but not in a political sense, right? It's um, it's the state that wields the sword, not the church. The church carries the cross, and when we get screwed up, is where the cross wants to carry the sword. And when that gets entangled, and we and we do that by entangling ourselves with the power of the state. Uh, that's a bad idea. So going back to your thing about are we a Christian nation, um, I, I think we are, we were not. I think a couple of questions to ask would be this. If we are a Christian nation, at what point do we behave like Christ? You know that, you know that um, uh, Quakers put Puritans to death uh, oh, because man. they would come over and preach the gospel to them. These are Christians killing Christians. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we, we, we know what we did to the Native Americans, which was horrible. That, that wasn't Christ-like. It's all, and not only so, I don't ever see us behaving like Christ uh, in the early uh, American history. Um, then when we actually become a nation, um, wh- let's, let's pull up the Declaration of Independence uh, or the Constitution, and let's go through it with a highlighter, and let's, let's mark every time we see uh, something, something from the teachings of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. I promise you when you get to the bottom, that will be an untouched document <laughs> because we didn't base anything about this nation on Jesus. So you can't call us a Christian nation because we are not Christ-like in the formation of our government. And people would say, whoa, 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 what about the Ten Commandments? Yes, that's Jewish. Uh, and that you could probably make a case that they probably did go back to look at maybe an Old Testament idea for government, because what? The Old Testament is uh, a document that largely was intended to govern uh, a nation of people that were, uh, you know, a godly nation, or not a godly nation, but a nation uh, created by God. That that was a unique thing that happened. Uh, God did not, here's the other thing, I don't go into this in the book, but um, maybe in my next book I'll talk about this. When people say when people say we're a Christian nation and they want to equate us to the nation of Israel, I want to say, well, then where is the prophet? In other words, do we even have in our own mythology this idea that God appeared to George Washington or an angel appeared to Thomas Jefferson? I mean, no. <laughs> do, do we have any even even yeah. any any testimony that no God appeared and God spoke and God ordained? No. And they themselves don't claim that. Um, and so, I mean, because those are the things you would need to have to, to have a legitimate claim to say that we are a Christian nation the same way that the nation of Israel was was God's nation. We don't have that. And they, they make no claims to that. And so even if I even if I grant to you 
and I'm being very gracious to do this, that the founding fathers were Christians. I think they were probably only deists, mostly. Dude, that that's they believed right. In a, Boom. Right. <laughs> But I'm going to be really gracious and go on and tell you, go on and let you have that. Okay, great. They were, let's say, they were genuine Christians, and the majority of the founding fathers really, really loved Jesus. I don't think you can prove that, but whatever, I'll give it to you. Even if they were, they very then specifically created a nation that was not Christian. That uh, they they on purpose created a nation that was wide open to all faiths and that was. Uh, embracing of all religions and or none, if that was your choice. And why? Because they had just left a, a nation. The whole point, right, of rebelling uh, from England was they left a state church uh, where a king did put people to death and in prison for, for not having the right religion and not following these, you know, the, the right things. So they um, very much on purpose designed a nation that was free from anything like that. They did not want a Christian nation like that. They wanted a nation where people were free, where people could have liberty, but they were very much – and by the way, Thomas Jefferson was very influenced by Roger Williams, the man that I mentioned, uh, and the writings of Roger Williams. Uh, And so that was one of the reasons why uh, they made a point to keep church and state separate ideas. Man. Yeah. I mean, I just – Crash course (laughs) in history, dude. Well, it's it's needed because I can tell you, Alex, like – it was just six years ago and I'm in church and we have one of these using air quotes, gospel meetings and they bring in this apologetics expert who's going to give us a history lesson on how we're a Christian nation and how we need to return to our roots and how far we've fallen from God and how severely punished we're going to be and, and, you know, get out and vote. And this is the way you need to vote and vote with your heart, not your pocketbook and all these different sayings over and over again until you you feel like you're not a Christian if you don't, and that right. that's why I found so much comfort in your book, Keith. It's it's an extremely timely message. Uh, yeah. Even I mean, even you wrote it uh, before you you knew who was going to be elected president. <laughs> and I, I, yeah. I can only imagine what you're thinking after the fact and and the way the election played out. And of course, this book comes out uh, today, inauguration day. Well, and you know, a part of me was when I was writing the book, I was kind of, I felt like I was racing the clock because I, I was writing it, I was finishing it up uh, before the election had taken place. So I didn't know writing the book, what, how that was going to play out. But I certainly was amazed and, you know, uh, in some ways sickened by what I was seeing happen yeah. uh, on both sides uh, and the, the, way the, the way the church got involved in that as well. But, you know, so a part of me was pushing to finish it. I wanted to finish the book at first, I thought, before the election. But I didn't, of course, do that. Uh, but then I realized, you know what, that's okay, because the church had a problem with entanglement before this election, and they're going to have a problem with entanglement, unfortunately, after this election. Possibly um, possibly worse. <laughs> yeah, actually. I, I feel, yeah, because I see Christians doubling down yes, they are. on their support um, for either candidate or either position, you know, rather than to, to take a step back and say, what have we done? Or have we, have we taken this a little too far? Um, and I'm hoping my book is, is the timing is right. I've really been praying. I put a lot of prayer into this, and I am praying that th- this is the right time for this book. That people will be open and receptive to what I'm saying in the book. Uh, and I pray that spiritually, it is God uses it like a hammer to just kind of knock some holes in the in that wall uh, to help them see some things that they're not seeing. I would love, and I've already, you know, uh, I've already been getting some 
uh, advanced copies of the book have gone out to different people, some bloggers and reviewers, and I've already been getting some very positive That's great. emails and uh, from people thanking me for the book and that it really has helped them and blessed them. And so that gives me hope. I, I do hope and pray that is what God is going to do. And if nothing else, that it starts the conversation to ask the question, you know, again, if the book itself doesn't, uh, you know, isn't the isn't the silver bullet, that's okay with me. As long as the book gets them thinking in this direction of qu- asking the right questions to, to say, um, is what I'm doing the way I'm behaving, does it honor Christ, or is it a distraction from the gospel? Yeah, I, I mean, I could say having having read it, it's very well written in the sense where you make some powerful, we call them boom statements, where if you read those on your own, I don't think anybody would listen to you because they were, they're they're almost like that statement by itself would almost be offensive, but you mm-hmm. start with such a gentle tone that by the time you get and read those statements, it's like, man, you you took all the edge off of it leading up to it, <laughs> and now it just makes sense, you know? I used to be, I'm older, I'm, I just turned 50, and uh, I've been blogging for about 10 years, and I'll be honest, when I first started, I was of the mindset, and I... I know a lot of people are this way too. In the beginning, I was of the mindset that to get people's attention, I had to really get in their face and rattle the cage and shake the tree. And and I had to get them angry at me just so they would pay attention to me and listen to what I had to say. But once I had their attention, you yeah. know, then I felt like I could I could make some ground. And I was convinced of that uh, early on. And um, it probably took me three or four years to figure out that actually uh, that wasn't the best way and that actually I could do – I could actually accomplish more – um, by, by, like you said, coming, coming at it a little bit more winsomely, um, maybe asking some questions, uh, not, not coming at people with such a combative tone, uh, but genuinely wanting really boils down to, I think, loving people who don't think the way you think. And it's realizing, and you know, what helps me to do that too, is recognizing, especially like in this situation, in this case, this, this subject, that a few years ago, I was just like them. Yeah. And uh, and so I have to have grace for them. I have to have mercy on them. Because, you know what, if I had read this book a few years ago, it would have blown my mind. And it probably would have made me really angry. And so uh, because of that, I'm trying to write in, in a way that that isn't combative because it's already uh, a sensitive issue. And uh, as much as possible, I want to take that emotion out of it and just let's just talk about Jesus. Let's just talk about the Absolutely. kingdom. Let's just talk about what really does make sense, you know. Absolutely. So why don't we talk more about that right after this break? Hey, guys, we're taking a little break from the interview to let you know about something. We had two new five-star reviews yes two new ones so you guys heard our commercial and you responded thank you guys so much you guys are awesome but we still need more reviews yeah so if you guys go to itunes and give us a five-star review that helps us out so much and it helped out helped us out so much we're going to read you the two new five-star reviews that we got this one is just simply titled good stuff and it's from nathan's brother so thanks phil (laughs) for writing us a review yeah Uh, It says, Alex and Jason are always entertaining and always have interesting guests. Looking forward to season two, which we're currently in the middle of right now, I really appreciate when our guests leave us five-star reviews because he was on our show last week. (laughs) (laughs) That's cool, though. This one says, interesting topics and humor. This is from somebody called Sleep Sack Susan. (laughs) 
What is that? I don't know what that is. Our new number one fan. Sleep Sack Susan says this. If you're looking for a podcast with subject matter that is convicting but also humorous, then this is your podcast. Uh, Animal Facts for Jason is my favorite segment. Oh, my goodness. I don't like her. (sighs) Thank you, Susan. Don't like her at all. We really appreciate your five-star review, and we would appreciate for you, the listener, to leave us a five-star review or some feedback on any one of our social media pages. Yeah. Well, Jason, let's get back to this. Well, I'm just saying, like, Alex, we don't ask for money. We're yeah. Not, we're not passing the collection plate. Nope. We just want you to leave some reviews. Yep. Absolutely. So please, leave us a review. That'll help us out. Let's get back to this interview. Yep. All right, guys, we're back with Keith Giles. Now, Keith, you are all over the internet. You are on uh, social media. You are on uh, Twitter at Keith Giles. You have a YouTube page. You have uh, a blog page, which is just KeithGiles.com. Uh, and also you have uh, the books page, which is just JesusUntangled.com. So if you want to hear more from Keith other uh, after this interview, you can just go check out those things, and Keith will probably really appreciate it. <laughs> yep. But earlier yep. in our conversation, we were talking about uh, the rad uh, book cover that you have on your book. And uh, you said that uh, Richard Jacobson had a lot to do with that. Yes, he did. You know what? He is such a dear guy. I love him to death. And um, he and I were Skyping right during the time I was finishing up writing my book. And he had just come out with his book, uh, Unchurching, which is a great book, by the way. Yes. And um, we were just talking, and I I was telling him about about my book. And um, he goes, well, what's it called? What's the title? And I said, oh, the title is Jesus Untangled. And he goes, okay. That doesn't tell me anything about your book. I don't. What's what's it really about? You know, like is there like is there like a in a sentence? Give me a sentence that really just tells me what is this book about? I said, well, it's about crucifying our politics so we can pledge allegiance to the Lamb. And he goes, now that is a good subhead. Yeah, it is. So that's where it came from. And and thank you, Richard, for challenging me to go a little bit farther with that. And I I agree. I think Jesus Untangled is great, but it by itself doesn't say anything. But but adding that little caveat about what is the, what, am, what am I asking people to do? I want us to crucify our politics as American Christians so that we can really truly pledge allegiance to the Lamb. Absolutely. So let, yeah. let's, why don't we get more into the book yeah, and some of the statements yeah, that's that you made. Well, let's talk about some of that entanglement. How did, how did we get entangled? <laughs> yeah, well, um, I, in the book I go into a whole lot of detail about that. And so in my research, um, I mean, it's sort of a twofold thing. Um, <clears throat> I think in one sense, you can go back. I think the f- the groundwork for entanglement was actually laid uh, under Constantine. Um, but in America specifically, and I did, again, I do talk about this in the book, um, there was a very specific effort made uh, by, largely by corporations, uh, who had a very specific plan to entangle and they, they employed Christian ministers to help them um, to craft a message that essentially um, united the, the Christian church in America, the evangelical Christian church in America, with the interests of corporations. And the idea being that any government that would pass a law or oppose or restrict uh, corporations would be the same government that would oppose and restrict uh, Christians and their freedoms uh, as, as Christians in the, in the nation. And so it's in our best interest for us to work together. 
um, and that's you know a lot of that is I detail that in the book. Um, it's and again, most Christians had no idea this was going on. They weren't aware that this is what was happening to them. They just suddenly kind of bought into it and and went in this direction. This is also then during the time where we had this. This is why our, our money says in God we trust. This is why our pledge of allegiance includes uh, one nation under God. Uh, those things weren't there until this movement came up to like push this you know effort forward to start uh, subtly bringing God and government together. Um, and then we had, I think, what we're really in the mess we're in now, uh, and, and again, I talk about this in the book as well and document this in the book, uh, was during the Reagan years when um, Jerry Falwell and the religious right uh, had a massive movement of, of Christians to get Christians to rally around Ronald Reagan to elect him president. He made all kinds of promises to the church, which he never kept. And um, there's an excellent book that I took a lot of my notes from. Um, it's a book called Blinded by Might. And it's written by um, Cal Thomas and Ed Dobson, who at the time were sort of the, the left and right-hand men of Jerry Falwell during the religious right movement. They were in those meetings uh, in the White House with Ronald Reagan and his team. They heard those promises made uh, about how, uh, hey, if you help me get elected president, I'm going to do two things. I'm going to put prayer back in schools, and then we're going to overturn Roe versus Wade. And uh, they, after it was all over, they wrote this book to basically say, we were played like a violin. <laughs> uh, this, this did not work. We were tricked. Uh, they made promises that he never intended to keep. Once he got elected, you know, it was crickets, and we could never, you know, get any traction. And, uh, and they recognized, unfortunately, that they had basically created a monster. Unfortunately, that monster is still alive, and it's still growing, and uh, people are still buying into that idea. Man. <laughs> I'm going to take a, take a second. <laughs> Digest. Okay. Uh, <laughs> oh, it, my it's goodness. Just, it seems like, like the church has kind of lost its own identity where we, we preach the Holy Spirit who changes hearts, and now we rely on political force to try to change hearts and yep. you talk about that in your book as well um yep and how that's so it's so backwards <laughs> yeah well it's true i start the book with a with a little bit of a joke that says you know what do you get when you mix religion and politics you get politics yeah uh and that unfortunately is where we're at um i remember having a conversation with a young lady at a at a coffee shop this happened about two years ago and we were having a little meeting in the back. Uh, the, the, the meeting was um, – I started this little meetup group on meetup.com, and it was called Jesus Without Religion or Politics. And the, the whole point of the meeting was for people who were not Christians who wanted to just get together and hear about Jesus, purely only about Jesus, without anybody telling them anything about politics and without anybody trying – you know, to, to shove religion or doctrine down their throat or get them to trick them into saying a prayer and joining a church or being a Christian, to sincerely, like, look, we're not going to trick you. You know, I just, if you're interested in knowing who Jesus is and you don't, you wanted to learn about him apart from that, this is for you. So we had, we were having those kind of meetings uh, in the coffee shop. It was our, one of our first meetings. And I went up to the counter, we were meeting in the back on the back patio. So I went up to the counter and I told the lady at the register, I said, Hey, we're having a meeting in the back. So people show up and they don't know where we are. Could you tell them we're in the back? And she goes, yeah, sure. She got a pen and she was, she was going to write down. She goes, well, tell me the name of your group. And I said, Oh, the name of the group is Jesus without religion or politics. And she stopped. And she was probably in her 20, 22, 23 years old. 
she had a nose ring and a tattoo. I mean, shaved head. She was like kind of a radical kind of girl. Yeah. And she looked at me and she looked at me and she said, what did you say? I said, oh, the group is Jesus without religion or politics. And she said, you know what? I walked away from my, I just stopped going to my church a few, a few months ago because I just got sick of every time I went to church, all I heard about was how much we were against these people and how these people were evil yeah. and liberals were going to destroy our nation and we had to be against uh, homosexuals. And I just wanted to hear about Jesus, but they never seemed to want to talk about Jesus. Yeah, Fox. That's <laughs> what, what you're talking about sounds exactly what I need and what I want. And that I think there's so many people that are in that place. But, but it's really difficult to find a church that doesn't want to talk about, yeah. you know, politics or political issues. Yeah, I think Alex and I have found one. I think I, we, I stumbled upon it accidentally, but I, it makes me wonder. I mean, the big buzzword today is deconstruction, and yeah. so many people are deconstructing their faith. And I wonder how much of that's actually them deconstructing their politics from it. I mean, that's yeah. that's a lot where I was. I mean— when I remember four or five years ago, I walk into a new church and I honestly hear the gospel for the first time. And at the same time, I realize that I'm the Pharisee. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, I really, truly <laughs> did. Like I was, I was yeah. so legalistic. I mean, I, I had mentioned off the top of our interview with you, how I had even changed my appearance, you know, just so I'd fit mm-hmm. in, you know, different, different haircuts and I remember my wife ha- and I having this conversation. I don't think I ever told you this, Alex. But there was there was one day where she's like, "Okay, we we have to we have to dress like grown-ups now. <laughs> like <laughs> we can't wear we can't wear the ripped jeans and and you know the t-shirts. I mean, we ha- we have to dress like grown-ups now because we we were trying so desperately to fit right. in and yep. and I just wonder how many people are maybe they were more of a liberal mindset. They cared about the left side's, you know, social justice. You know, they they cared more about the poor. They cared more about the mother who was making the decision on abortion rather than just the sinful act of abortion. They actually care for people, but then they don't feel like they fit in because all they're getting are these Fox News sermons and and how this is bad. And and it's like it's like uh you know, a Republican or becoming a Republican is built into the church's, you know, sanctification process almost. Yeah. And and for a lot of people, that just, it doesn't fly with them, you know? Yeah. And I, I just yeah, wonder absolutely. how many people are walking away from from the church because it is so entangled in politics. Right. And you know what? And, um, well, we do know, right, there's this there's this uh, phenomenon, the nuns and the duns. And, uh, <laughs> and a lot of evangelical churches are finally realizing, oh, no, uh, we we are basically are pushing people away in droves. And and a lot of the if you look at a lot of the research, a lot, of, especially with young people, uh, one of the, some of the biggest reasons they give for why are you walking away from church? Why are you done with church is they're sick of hearing about political stuff from yep. the pulpit. And they and again, it's like, well, you know what? I, I was having a, a conversation on Facebook the other day with a friend of mine about this issue, and she was arguing back to me, "What's wrong with using politics? What's wrong with being, you know, a Republican or a Democrat? And that, what's wrong if I vote and blah blah blah?" And I said, I finally said to her, I said, "You know, friend, here's what's wrong with it, because uh, young people are leaving the church by the thousands, mm-hmm. and if we don't stop this, if we don't." Put away our entanglement and focus on Jesus. Is Jesus in five years? There won't be a church. No, 
Yeah. We we sacrificed so we sacrificed the gospel for the political message of which you so I mean you called out in your book like we we follow this American God of safety comfort and luxury and man when that stuff kind of runs out for people like a younger generation what happens. Yeah, well, that is a problem, and I think um, it's definitely an American problem. You know, um, I, I don't talk about this specifically in the book, but um, it's one of these things where, you know, uh, in America, a lot of the ways that we kind of evangelize people is we say, "Come to Jesus," and you know, and and your life will be better, and all your problems will go away, yeah. and you'll have a better life, and you know, you probably get a better job, and your your marriage will be better, and your kids will be more, better behaved, and you'll probably get a promotion and a raise, and your four hundred one k will explode, and it'll just be awesome, right? And and that and and you know, that's a very American way to talk, but anywhere else other than America, pretty much, the gospel goes like this. Come and follow Jesus. Now, you might lose your job. You could end up in jail. Your wife might leave you because she doesn't believe in Christianity the way you do. Your kids might have nothing to do with you, and you might end up you know, in jail or beaten or maybe even dead. But um, hey, if you really do believe that Jesus is the, is the King of kings and the Lord of lords and, and he's the Messiah and he's, he's got the right answers for the right way to live your life, then you should follow Jesus. And, uh, and you know, so it doesn't work. It only kind of works in America. Because if you take that gospel outside of America, and the rest of the world, the body of Christ, has a very different perspective on what it means to follow Jesus. They, it's much more like, oh, count the cost. This yeah. might cost you something. It might even cost you your life. Um, and so we've lost that, you know, I think it, largely. Um, I, I was having a conversation years ago with a guy, great New Testament scholar named G.K. Beale. And he was talking about how that it what we see in the in the New Testament is that there are two major weapons that the church that Satan uses against the church. One of them is persecution, and the other one is deception. Yeah. And then he said, "So Keith, tell me, which weapon do you think the Satan is using most effectively against the church in America?" Oh man. <laughs> well, it isn't persecution, uh, not- even though they think it is. They talk like it is. Oh, I can't. You know, I, I just I just went to uh, Best Buy and I bought uh, a brand new flat screen TV and they said Happy Holidays. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, I'm yeah. being Whoa, persecuted. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? It's just ridiculous. No one's no one's. You're not losing your job. No one's no. throwing you in jail. No one beat you with a nightstick. Uh, that's persecution. Yeah. Um, Man, so, dude. Yeah, we call that the prosperity gospel. That you know yeah. just. Just, but even if you don't yeah. embra- even if you don't embrace the prosperity gospel, you know the the kind of the whole nine yards kind of thing, uh, like those guys. I think in some ways we still, you know, evangelical evangelical Christians still do kind of have this idea that if I'm if I'm going through hard times, if things aren't going great, well, it's the enemy. Pray for me. Yeah. Hope. Hard times are coming. This must be the enemy. Well, you know, maybe it's Jesus. Maybe he's wanting to make you uncomfortable so that you take your eyes off of your stuff and maybe you go to him and you say, oh, God, help me. And here's the thing, too, we, we, you know, we forget. Um, for, for some of us, the only time God hears our voice is when uh, I need something, yeah. you know, and it's kind of like God saying, oh, there you are. Yeah, yeah. How you been? Good to hear you. You know, 
Yeah. Oh, you got a problem? Oh, you're having a struggle with something? Great. Yeah. Well, yeah, I kind of put that there because I wanted to talk to you about some things, right? I want you to trust <laughs> it. I want you to trust me with that. I want you to maybe, I don't know, surrender that to me yeah. and, and let, let me take control of that. So I think we, we kind of do, we may, it, it may not be the classic sort of prosperity gospel idea, but it is sort of the idea that everything should go pretty good for me. Yep. And if I'm following Jesus, everything should be great. Yeah, man. Yeah. Gosh, dang. <laughs> Sorry. Again, so <laughs> blowing my mind again, Keith. Come on. We we can't Sorry. we can't talk ab- about politics this much without without mentioning who's who's going into office today. Mm, and uh, yes. And you know we we've heard this the slogan "Make America Great Again" for a long yeah. time now, and I just wonder on how many Christian mindsets it's "Make America Christian Again." Oh yeah, and so oh, absolutely, and so like now we've we've got Trump in office with a super conservative government, mm-hmm. and now you know the wall goes up, Roe v. Wade is overturned, gay marriage made illegal, Muslims placed in camps, Mexicans sent home. However, you want to slice it, are are these American ideals? Or are these Christian ideals? They don't look Christian to me at all. <laughs> no, they don't, and actually they. They kind of make me, if all things you just described, if that becomes America in the next four years, uh, I mean, that to me sounds like I feel like I'm in um, Soviet communist Russia or I'm under like Nazi Germany, you know, where um, I don't know. I'm I'm hoping, I'm really hoping and praying that doesn't happen. I'm hoping like a lot of the promises that Trump made, uh, you know, lock her up and things like that, that when it comes down to it, he either will back off of it because it was just stuff yeah. that sounded good. It sounded good. He even he even said this. Oh, that that played really well before the election, but now we don't care about that. Yeah. Um, I'm hoping that that's it's all just hot air and it's just you know. Um, although I think it, it, I don't think it's harmless. I think I think even if it turns out to be that he doesn't really intend to to deport Mexicans or to put Muslims in internment camps and that kind of stuff. I hope he doesn't. But even if he doesn't, he's still talking that way. And we've already begin, uh, begun to see um, that language gives people permission. Yeah. It gives people permission to say, you know what? Um, if, if, the pre- if a guy can win in a presidential election uh, talking that way and, and validating feelings that I might already have, where I do think that, Muslims want to kill us and blow us up. And I do think that that Mexican-American immigrants illegally are here and taking my job. Um, Then it may give me permission to act violently. It may give me permission, you know, to go and try and burn down a mosque or or what have you. And that's so it's still dangerous. It still um, puts us in a bad place. Uh, I'm I'm really hopeful, though, that those things don't happen. But, you know, you I think we do have to ask the question. What do we do if it does happen? Yeah. If all of a sudden they do start coming, uh, you know, and ra- rounding up Muslims the way they did, the way we did the Japanese. Yeah. Uh, in World War II. Yeah. Wow. And then I, it makes me wonder. Uh, I thought about this a lot. Like, okay, if that were to start happening for real, um, maybe what I would do is is identify as a Muslim, and then I would go and live in one of those camps, and then I would start telling those Muslims about Jesus. Oh yeah, I mean, I, you're not the first it's person I've heard dude. that from. I've I've heard several Christians, uh, like Mike McCarg, Science Mike. He's, 
I don't know if you've heard of him. He's he's said almost the same thing. Yeah. Um, I think it would be the right thing to do. I think I think it would be. Uh, here's the thing that I think again, American Christians seem to really fail to notice about Jesus is that he seems to always be on the side of those who are being oppressed. Uh, he's on the side of those who have no power. He's on the side of the of the poor, the sick, um, you know, the marginalized, the leper, the prostitute, the drunkard, you know, the people that are lowest of the low, the people that are on the outside and the edges and the marginalized. That's where Jesus seems to really, um, you know, that's where he leans. And unfortunately, the church in America miss that we we tend to lean more with people who have power yeah right we want to get close to the the ceos and uh you know we, we want to lean towards people who have have power and influence and control in society um i, I think if that does begin to happen uh it would be more christ-like to align ourselves with those who are being oppressed and i think it would give a beautiful it would be a beautiful opportunity uh to be you know to be in a barracks with a bunch of Muslims and be the only Christian guy there uh, for them to say, what are you doing here? And to say, you know what? I'm here to tell you about Jesus, the real, yeah. the real Jesus, not the one that, you know, the people say they follow who put you in here, but the real Jesus. Wow. Uh, man, That's, that's I think powerful. it'd be amazing. Yeah. Oh man. You got Do you got a statement, Jason, you want to read? Oh, I was just going to say in your book, you bring up this, uh, this scripture from Ezekiel. You say, behold, this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food, and careless ease, but she did not help the poor and needy. Thus they were proud and committed abominations before me. Therefore, I removed them when I saw it. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> wow. It kind of reveals uh, that the things that God cares about don't, unfortunately, don't seem to be the things that we are concerned about. Not, you know? not in this present age. No, because when I read the first time I ever read that verse, I thought, you know, you know what other nation that sounds like? Let's see. What's a nation that's rich, overfed and unconcerned for the poor who live among them? Yikes. Yeah. That sounds like the country I was born in. And, that's scary. and, and, and I, I went through, um, you know, part of my process, the pulling back layers was was a disillusionment, you know. Uh, I think the part of the process, and I and I try to do a little of this in the book. And believe it or not, I pull my punches a little bit. I I think if you read the book, you might think, man, he is just relentless. But the truth is, I pull my punches a little bit. Yeah. Um. But but I, I wanted to to bring some of that disillusionment as well, because I, I what I unfortunately over time began to realize was that the America that I loved, the America that I was so excited to be a member of, a citizen of. Uh, I slowly realized that American never existed, that it was a fantasy, that we had never really been who I was told we were. And um, and so going back through American history and looking at uh, everything from, you know, the, the colonial Americas to uh, the founding of our nation, the way we dealt with Native Americans, the way what happened in the Civil War, um, the way we've dealt with every war, we've been in wars pretty much since the founding, uh, almost nonstop since the founding uh, of our nation, um, realizing that most of those wars, even the wars that we think are so, uh, like World War II, you know, these we, we would say are just wars. 
um, that really when you pull back the covers, you realize, you know what, it was just an opportunity for people to make, for a few corporations to make billions of dollars and get filthy rich. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, we didn't have to go to war and we could have stopped it without firing a shot. Um, we could have dealt with these issues in different ways. The reasons we went to war were not the, the reasons we were told we went to war were not really the reasons we went to war and all those kinds of things. And so um, it, it's painful, you know, it's painful to realize that the America that you that you love doesn't really that that America is a fantasy. It's not real, um, and it it hurts. <laughs> it hurts to admit that. And so again, in the book, I try to show a few ways, um, like the way our government really works, uh, the fact that we really are an empire, uh, some historical situations that, that that have taken place, the way we have destabilized governments from the beginning, um, and elections and all those kind of things, and people died because of decisions we made that in the end only ultimately uh, benefited a few corporations who made billions of dollars by exploiting resources from third world nations. And and there are dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of examples. This, is, this isn't even I – I was talking to someone about this, and they were questioning me, and they said, well, do you have any proof of that? And I'm like, oh, my gosh, just Google it. My goodness. <laughs> like it's it's like it's – you can't – I mean you have to try not to see it, and I think for a lot of us, we do try not to see it because it, it's ugly, and it's, yeah. it's not it's not something we want to see. But it is the truth. It is there. Hmm. So I got one last question for you, Keith, and we'll let you, uh, we'll let you go. And just thank you again so much for uh, dealing with us and our, our – uh, numerous technical numerous, issues yeah. Right. tonight. Yeah, but no again, problem. just thank you so much for uh, letting us speak with you. And uh, there's there's been some challenging things for me in this interview, so I'm gonna walk away and definitely chew on some things that you said. Sure. But for my last question is, there's probably somebody's asking, maybe they're lockstep with you this entire interview, and they're mm-hmm. like, man, okay, Keith's making some good points. I'm gonna buy the book on Amazon when it comes out. But what is my role as a Christian in politics if I do have any? Is there any is there any uh, facet of the government that I should participate in? And, like, should I vote for candidates that I believe are going to be, I don't want to say the Christian candidate, but the, the candidate that maybe is, like, the best, uh, the best one to pick because he's going to uh, allow for uh, a climate or an atmosphere for the gospel to go forth. Like for for example, that we have a we have a sheriff in uh, Genesee County. His name is Bacal, and he is he's a he is a Christian, and but he's a Democrat. So it's like, oh my gosh, he's a Christian Democrat. It's like uh-huh. a unicorn. Whoa, <laughs> unicorn! <laughs> and um, well, he ran under a, a Democratic uh, ticket, and yep. I voted for him, and so mm-hmm. I'll I'll. I'll, Sinner, Alex. I I voted for him <laughs> mainly because of what I heard, what people said about him. They yeah. said that, especially the guys that worked inside the jail, that he's a great man. He's very kind. He's very generous. But he allows uh, the church to come in and evangelize and preach the gospel to inmates. And it's like, mm-hmm. I want that guy to stay there because I want inmates to hear about Jesus. And the yep. more inmates, and it, they have statistics on it, it's like, 80% of these uh, these inmates that are going into prison and they get in these, uh, they call them like a Bible pod is what it's called. And it's basically mm-hmm. like where they're in Bible study almost, you know, 12 hours a day in these Bible pods yeah. in the prison. They have an 80%, none of them return back into the prison system. Yeah. So I want to vote for a guy like that. Yeah, I so, get it. Uh, so, I mean, to make a long story short, 
is there any role for us as Christians in government that doesn't compromise or in politics that doesn't compromise our allegiance to the Lamb? Yeah, and you know what? A lot of this does boil down to I, – I, I mean this is a difficult topic because honestly it, when it comes down to it, it boils down to real, honest, sincere, personal conviction. And, and, and so I honestly – I can't answer that question for you or anybody, right? But what I hope is that the book would help you to ask really better questions and have a, a clearer vision and understanding of what it is that you're part of and what it is that – uh, the mechanism you're trying to use to make the world a better place. It's not wrong to want to make the world a better place. Uh, I think that we all, should, I mean, if we're followers of Jesus, that's that should be something that we really are passionate about. Um, what I would say, though, is a couple of things. Um, one is uh, something that I want Christians to get, to understand when it comes to this issue of politics, is that Christians already have more power, the average Christian, has more power than any president to transform the culture around them. Hmm. Because you have you have the gospel. You have you have something designed by the greatest mind in the universe. And what it was designed to do, like a virus, is to transform you into someone who behaves like Jesus, and then to allow you to transform people around you into people who behave like Jesus. That there's nothing better than that. There's nothing more powerful than that. Now unfortunately it's there are things that are faster than that. So if you if you don't want to have if you don't have a lot of patience and you want to try and do something now, well then yes, of course, let's go and um, do something and maybe that politically you want to create something. Um, again, not that that's bad. In the long run, that's good. I like what you just described. Sounds beautiful. But I will say with respect, I know a lot of. I mean, there are tons of jail ministries and prison ministries here in Orange County and probably across the United States without a sheriff who's a Christian. I mean, the sheriff it may not be a Christian at all, but they allow chaplains to come in. They allow uh, Christian groups to come in and preach the gospel and have Bible studies. So you don't necessarily need a Christian right. sheriff for Absolutely. that to take place. And and I would also say this. I'll concede, and I do, this, I do say this in the book. I talk about people like William Wilberforce and Martin Luther King. and um, it, Not to say that it's that there haven't been Christians involved in politics, and not to say that uh, some good things don't come out of situations where Christians are in politics. But I would I would stop short of saying, therefore, God blesses and is excited about and is in favor of that kind of entanglement. And, and, and here's my example. Um, you could look at, for example, King David, uh, and you could say, well, look at there. Here's a godly king. God, heck, God even says he's a man after God's own heart, Right. Uh, so you know what that yeah. and there's like you know Josiah and there's been other there's other king examples of really godly kings uh, in the Old Testament. So therefore, that means God is all about kingship. He loves having kings. He thinks kingship is the way to go, right? Well, no, no. because we wouldn't even have a, a king over Israel if what didn't happen. The people rejected God yeah. as their king. And that's why there was a King Saul, and and that after him was King David. So in other words, yes, sometimes within a flawed system that isn't exactly what God wants, God still gets his way, and he still finds a way to do what he wanted to do. But I would submit that those things are not his best, and, and that he can still accomplish what he wants without the power of government. Come on, uh, you know, the gospel doesn't need any help from some other outside force before it, it can be something that's effective and transforming the world. The faith that we have inherited 
was born under Nero. It was born and bred in that briar patch of Christians being persecuted and put to death and, uh, you know, and, and put in jail and all that, that kind of oppression. So, you know what? We can handle anything. It doesn't matter if they're for us or against us. In fact, honestly, usually historically when they're against us, we grow even faster and the gospel advances even more. Hmm. Yep. So, uh, and the, the thing, the thing again, um, that I want people to understand, this is why I think entanglement is so dangerous and I say this in the book, you can't convert a culture that has already converted you. And to use a really dated movie metaphor, you can't help people escape the matrix <laughs> if you're still plugged into the matrix. And unfortunately, wow. most Christians yeah. are still plugged into the matrix, but they think they're not. Yeah. They don't realize that they still are. And my book, I want, to, I want them to realize it. I want them to wake up in the pod and look around and say, oh, crap, what happened? <laughs> uh, how, I'm still plugged into this thing. Um, and if I want people to get out of it and be really truly free of it, I have to be free of it first. Hmm. And so that's my hope. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, gosh. <laughs> I wanted to have a good night's rest, but I feel yeah. like I'm going to have all this stuff that I'm going to have to think about now. Yeah. I mean, Sorry. we refer to Richard Jacobson as kind of Gandalf in our circles, but yeah. I think you're right up there with them. Oh, thank you. Do I have to wear a funny hat or anything? Uh, no. <laughs> no. Oh, man. Well, <laughs> Keith, thank you so much, man. I appreciate it. And yeah, thank you so much for putting up with all of our technical difficulties and uh, just blowing it's our okay. minds a little bit. Yeah. Awesome. Thank yeah. you, guys. I'm, I am honored and blessed. And uh, any time, I'd like to come back and keep on talking about anything you want to talk about. Oh, we'd love to have you back. Absolutely. So one more cool. time, the book is coming out. Well, this this podcast is coming out on Inauguration Day. Yep. And that's the same day that your book is coming out, right? That's exactly right. So today, yep. go to Amazon.com, get Jesus Untangled. Um, you can go to JesusUntangled.com if you want to learn more about the book. But if you go to Amazon today, uh, the book is available starting today on Inauguration Day. Uh, cast your vote for Jesus. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> that is awesome. Oh, man. Yeah. So awesome. Cool, Keith. Well, uh, have a good night, man. And uh, we'll see you around, all right? Yeah, man. We'll stay in touch. God bless. Yeah. All right. Thank see you. ya. Wow, Jason. <laughs> Another great interview in the bag. And you know what? It's Inauguration Day, so yep. it, it, perfect timing once again. You know, our last episode about about uh, Jesus uh, thwarting demons came out on a Friday the 13th. Yep. And now we have this political episode that we recorded with uh, Keith Giles. Keith You're on Giles. A, did I say Giles? You did say Giles. Dang it. It starts with a G, so it's like that. Man, I'm such a jerk. Sorry, Keith. super nice guy we actually talked a little bit with him after we stopped recording and just man just very humble very nice guy and a guy who's really got a message that he wants to proclaim and get get people back focused on jesus yeah which i you can't fault a guy for that yeah i think i think that's something that we we might take for granted alex just because our church isn't all that political it's it's not you know, traditional, it doesn't seem, it, it's probably considered liberal, but that's just like, that's a really loose word. Like, yeah. uh, you know, a church might consider the one across the street liberal and it, it liberal doesn't really mean anything anymore almost. Yeah. It, it, or, or it could mean anything. So, but 
I, I know a lot of people are stuck in those situations. Maybe you're stuck going to a church because that's where your mom or dad wants you to go, or this is where grandma goes and you don't want to upset them, but you're just hearing garbage sermon, Fox News sermons is what I call them, just these political, anti-gay, anti-Muslim sermons. And I'm not even saying that there's there's not truth hidden within those sermons. The problem is, is usually with those sermons is there's no gospel. There's no gospel message, and you end up forgetting what the gospel even looks like. And this is this is why I think his message of entanglement, uh, untangled, untanglement. Yeah, no, it, that's not right. I I didn't think so. Basically, let's getting our focus and our allegiance back on the lamb. Yeah, just say that. I think that's why this book is so timely and important right now. Absolutely, and I absolutely appreciate his work. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've had two authors on, and... Oh, no, three, with Counting Doc. Oh, yeah, and just three absolutely amazing books. Mm-hmm. All, all Jesus-centric, yep. all all that great stuff. But anyway, we got some other great stuff, too, Jason. We got a Facebook. We got a Twitter. Oh, yeah. We got an Instagram. We got SoundCloud. We got Stitcher. We got Google Play, and, of course, we got iTunes. Uh, if you can find us on all of those pages, please go like us. If you've never heard of us before, give us a like on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, follow us on Instagram. Jason's posting pictures left and right. Yeah. It's mostly f- Legos. Yeah. Mostly Legos. Unfortunately. That's what I'm into. Yeah. It's what we're into. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but please, uh, go like the, go like those. And Hey, if you got a comment, if you got something you'd like to say, contact us on Facebook and make sure you leave those five star reviews. That really helps us out. We couldn't, we couldn't thank you guys enough for the five stars reviews that you left us last week. So yeah. thank you guys. Yeah, uh, definitely. Like, if you have any feedback or reach out to us, you have questions, you have comments, let us know. Mm-hmm. Well, Jason, let's let everybody go to bed and dream of sweet, sweet things that Donald Trump is going to do with his presidency. Oh my goodness, <laughs> that's, we love- that's worse than all those spider videos you post on my <laughs> Facebook. <laughs> You're an A-double snakes. (laughs) We love you guys. We'll catch you later, all right? And remember, always always keep keep your your stick stick on the the ice. Froze again. Froze again. Dang Dang it. it.